All right, good morning, everybody. Hopefully everybody is doing well and ready to celebrate Father's Day and all that kind of good stuff, which is exciting. Uh, but I, again, I'm just very excited to be in the book of Acts right now. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, raise that hand up in the air and someone will bring one to you so you can follow along with us. You're welcome to keep that Bible if you'd like it. Uh, but uh, just working our way through the gospel of Acts, really working our way through the New Testament. And uh, I've divided it up by doing a chapter a week so we can get through the whole New Testament in five-ish years, give or take a few Christmases and Easter's that we have to uh, divert a little bit. Uh, but uh, we're at the three-year point right now. So it's been three years up to this point. We're most of the way through the New Testament, believe it or not, to just have a little bit more to go over the next couple of years. And we'll get the whole New Testament in again if you've been here you know, for the last 20 years, this will be the second or third time through the, the Bible for you. But uh, for us, pretty exciting to just kind of keep doing that. Uh, the book of Acts is a, a smart, simple book uh, in that it just, it just plainly lays out the spread of the gospel from the time of the cross of Jesus Christ as it begins to spread throughout the world. And we, of course, are thankful that it did that because it spread throughout the world all the way to us 2,000 years later that we have the gospel, that we've received this truth. So we want to certainly see how that plays out. Uh, when we approach the word, we're looking for a couple of things personally. We want to ask ourselves the question, what is God saying to me in his word? That, that There's going to be universal things that I'm going to say to all of us. But he's speaking to you personally through his word today. He has things he wants to say to you. And so for your part, you want to be good soil. You want to be good listeners. You want to ask the Lord, what is it you want to speak to me today? And you want to pay attention for those things that will have an impact on the things that are going on in your life. Uh, and then make plans around those things. If God has instructed you in something, let's make plans to do those things. And so that's your part of this contract we have. I promise to keep preaching the word. Uh, and you guys promise to listen for the voice of God in the word. So uh, here we are in chapter three of the book of Acts. Uh, just real quickly, I want to kind of give you this setup so you can just be reminded where we were last week because that's going to play into where we are this week. Uh, in Acts chapter two, after the ascension of Jesus, there was this kind of mighty, powerful moment of this movement of the Spirit of God, and suddenly there were thousands of people who had become Christians in that moment. And those thousands of people, they didn't have uh, a church bylaws or constitution. They didn't have a church staff. Uh, they didn't have sounds system. They didn't have any of the stuff you need for church, right? What they did have was they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then it starts to tell us what some of the outcome of that was. In verse 43 of chapter 2, they were starting to see wonders and signs taking place to the apostles. Well, in today's passage, uh, we're going to see one of those wonders and signs, almost as if on cue, Peter mentions wonders, or Luke mentions wonders and signs, and he's going to give us an example of one. Uh, in addition to that, you're going to see that they were continuing with one mind in the temple. So we'll see them in the temple today as well. And then at the end of that, in verse 47, we'll see that day by day, there were those who were being saved. So we're going to see people getting saved as well in chapter 3 today. Uh, but what's uh, really interesting to me in this, I think for us to keep in mind, is that those who were the initial Christians were Jews. They didn't stop being Jews and become Christians. No, they were Jews who believed that just Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. They didn't stop being Jews. They continued in all of the things that they did before. They just now saw that there was this sacrifice, this ultimate sacrifice, paying the price for their sins, that the promised one of God was there, and they were able to experience him in that. So uh, what you're going to see now is Peter and John continuing in the temple. Of course they would, because they were 
They were still Jews. So let's set that scene here in verse one of chapter three. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. uh, And a man had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they also set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. So they're headed into the temple because this is what Jews in Jerusalem did. You see, they had three times during the day that were devoted specifically to prayer. And those that were able to would actually go to the temple for those prayers. Those who weren't would stop where they were and they would face the temple. The reason they're facing the temple is two of these times of prayer, uh, the third hour of the day, which would be 9 a.m., and here, the sixth or the ninth hour of the day, which would be 3 p.m., at these two times of day, they would be offering the morning and the evening sacrifice at the temple. So a sacrifice for the nation of Israel is being offered. It was being burnt on the altar, and the smoke of that sacrifice would go up into heaven, and the people would look at or surround the temple so they could see the sacrifice go up to heaven on this their behalf, and they would pray, and it was like a visual for them that their prayers within the sacrifice that was being made for their sins, their prayers were rising to heaven. It's kind of this great reminder built into their day, every single day to go through this pattern. Now, these hours of prayer uh, were, were kind of historically uh, added to over time. Uh, they, you can kind of get a general idea of this. This is not in the Old Testament law where they said you had to do this, but you can get a general idea of this in separate places in Scripture. One is in Psalm 55, 17, where the psalmist says, At evening, in morning, at noon, I will cry out to you in my distress. Uh, you see Daniel when he was uh, it, uh, carried away into captivity that he would pray to God three times a day. So this was kind of built into that. And then what they did over time is they built up these traditions around those hours of prayer where they would take a couple of scriptures together and they would turn those scriptures into prayer. So what they would pray at each of these times of prayer, they would pray what is known as the Shema. This is out of the book of Deuteronomy. And this is where it says, the Lord is God, the Lord is one God. You shall love the Lord your God. And these words... You shall put them as a door plate. They should be on the post of your house, as a frontal on your head. They should be bound to your hand. It says that these words should be taught to your children as you go throughout your day, when they're laying down, when you sit down, and when you rise up. And so they would repeat this as a reminder to themselves to love God and to that it should be broadcast to all of their family that they love God. They should teach this to their kids. They would repeat that three times a day. Then they would take the Psalms, and, and different traditions had different Psalms that they would use, but most of them would use some combination of Psalm 145 through 150. And they would take those Psalms and either sing them or pray them to God. I actually went through this this week. Uh, not that I need a new habit. I don't really need to find one more thing that I'm going to fail at by not doing as often as I promised to do, right? But uh, what I did is I just, in that moment, I'm like, as long as I'm studying this out, I'm just going to do this. And so I took that, the great Shema, and then I took those Psalms, and I just turned them in prayers towards God. And it was actually like, just very encouraging to me. Those Psalms at the end there of the, of the book of Psalms, those are just these, these long lists of praises towards God. And it really just kind of like encourages you, like, this is our God. So it really is kind of this powerful thing where all the people are paying attention, but now that all the people are paying attention, this is a great moment for God to do something. 
Everybody's already praying to God. Everybody's already looking towards the temple. And so it's in this moment where God's going to choose to do something. Now, let me just show you just briefly. uh, This is a model of what Herod's temple would have looked like. If you were to actually go to that spot today, what you would find is a big open flat spot on the ground with uh, the the, uh, Islamic mosque there. The temple on the mount is there. And so it wouldn't look like this today, but this is a model of what it would have looked like. Uh, Sadly enough, uh, Herod's temple took about 80 years to build. Uh, and within 10 years, it was destroyed again. So uh, this uh, was a very short-lived thing. There's not been a temple there since that time. I think intentionally, there is no more need for sacrifices because we have the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus Christ. But we see in the end times, there will be a renewed temple for a short time again. Uh, but anyway, this is kind of just a picture of what it would look like. So that, that middle building that you see there, that smaller building, it's about 30 feet by 90 feet in, in dimensions. So you know, not really much bigger than this room, if you think of it kind of in long ways, not much bigger than this, right? That was the actual temple, but all around that was this giant courtyard where the Gentiles even could come in. And this is the places where it said Jesus would chase out the money changers. Just imagine that as just a big uh, swap meet or a flea market kind of around that. Just all these people kind of all gathered together around those temple courts, right? And that main gate that's seen there, uh, that is believed to be what would be called the beautiful gate. And it was called beautiful because it was made out of bronze. And as the sun would hit it, it would just kind of shine and glow as you're approaching the temple. You could just kind of be working your way towards the light as you're going up to pray, right? It's kind of this beautiful moment, but you see that there's a ramp there. And that ramp there would make it very difficult. That is not ADA compliant, (laughs) right? That would make it very difficult for somebody who was, as this guy that we meet here in chapter 2, sorry, in chapter 3, verse 2, this guy who was lame from his mother's womb, uh, so much so that he had to be carried around. Uh, We'll find out uh, in chapter uh, four, that um, this guy was over 40 years old. So for 40 years, he had to be carried around to different places. And it said that it was his habit, in this chapter, it's going to say it was his habit every day to just hang out there at the beautiful gate and to beg. He was asking for alms. And so I don't, I don't really know how this worked in Hebrew culture, but in every old-timey movie I've ever seen, there they say, alms, alms for the poor, you know, just that kind of idea where he would just ask these people going on. And, and by the way, he's got a great setup because everybody that's about to go through that gate is on their way to see God, right? And they're thinking, probably wouldn't hurt if I was nice on the way into the temple. And you know, he's, he's in a great spot to receive this financial support that he needs because in the culture he's in, it would be very difficult for him to earn any living at all. It'd be super hard for him. So he sees now Peter and John, who are just doing what they always did because they were Jews, coming into the temple and he starts to to beg of them. He's hoping to receive money from them. Well, he's about to be disappointed, but pleasantly so. Verse 4, first the disappointment. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold. (laughs) Oops. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. 
And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. You see, through the power of God, they've just drawn a crowd again. When you draw a crowd, Peter's about to preach, right? But I want you to think about this scenario. This is a miraculous healing, of course, that we see here. But I want you to understand, I want you to think of it in these terms. If it was his habit to sit at that gate so much so that everyone in the crowd recognized him as the one that always sat at that gate, that likely means that Peter and John, who were of the habit of going for the hour of prayer, would have passed by him many times and not healed him. Maybe they had given him money on other occasions. And if he had been there for 40 years, it's possible that even Jesus had passed by him and not healed him. There were many opportunities for him to be healed, but they they didn't come. He wasn't healed until this moment. So what changes in this moment? Did did Peter just get this wild hair like, you know what, I'm going to do something different today? No, I think he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in this moment, the Spirit said, on your way to prayer, I have a chore for you today. And so I don't know that Peter and John planned this. I think as they approached this man, the Spirit said to him, you need to do something today. And he responded to the Spirit. Uh, I would say that the clearest understanding of this is uh, it's really going to be the faith of Peter and John that are recognized here. It doesn't even say anything about this guy even believing in Jesus. Now, he's going to believe after this. How could you not, right? But it doesn't even say up to this point that he believed in Jesus, But he's going to respond to this request to get up, and he's going to get up. That's a pretty powerful thing. Uh, Now, it's usually at this point in a sermon where we're talking about healing, where I I start to get, I'm like, I I have like two minutes set aside where I'm going to give you the full theology of healing in Scripture. And so I start to explain to you, God still heals today. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. And I always put it the same way. I'm like, you should be asking him for healing until you die. Or he says yes, or he says no, right? But then I always point out, you know, not everybody gets healed. I point that out biblically. Jesus at the pool of Bethsaida, at the pool of Siloam maybe. I don't remember which one it was. They were at the pool. That's what I remember. All the people were there to get healed that day, but he only healed one of them. So not everybody gets healed. So I always feel like by the time I'm done explaining it all away, I worry that people are like, yeah, healing's not that cool anymore. (laughs) So I don't want you to do that. So I'm going to go out on a limb here. I might like look a fool in a minute, but I'm just going to go out on a limb here. If you or someone you personally know you believe was miraculously healed, would you just do me a favor and just raise your hand in the air? Look at that. People you know in your church either were or know somebody that was miraculously healed. And the reason I do that is I don't want to shrink your confidence in God's ability to heal. I want to increase it. 
And so in my, my, my struggle to try to balance the equation, I think sometimes I put too much weight on the times that he doesn't heal, but I want to remind you that he does heal. Look, I don't see him heal every time, but every single day I see people who, I, hey, he's healed. And we don't always think of it in those terms. And that was really brought to my mind this week. I had already come up with this idea that I was going to do the show of hands thing, and I'm so glad that people could show hands. <laughs> Would have been awkward, right? <laughs> but um, so I was at a, at a meeting on Tuesday night, and this was like a very businessy type meeting. This was not spiritual in nature, right? Uh, but one of the guys goes, just, I just need to tell you guys this, what happened to me last month. And he goes on to explain how he was sick and close to dying and didn't have access to the medical equipment they told him he needed to live. And so when he couldn't sleep because he couldn't breathe, he would listen over and over and over to a recording of all the passages in the Bible that talk about healing. And he would just pray them over and over and over. And he did that for weeks on end until he would fall asleep. And then eventually God took it away from him. And now he doesn't need that metal equipment anymore. He was healed. And as I think to myself, like how encouraging that was for me to hear it from his mouth, a guy that I know and have known for years, it's important for us to know that God does heal. That's what we're seeing here in the book of Acts. God does heal. We need to be reminded of that. But I want us to understand also why God heals. In this moment, it seems like he healed this guy for the opportunity for the gospel to go out. And he's going to actually make that more clear in this next section that we look at. Uh, But I just want you to see what's going to happen from this. We've already got a crowd of people together. They're all there for the hour of prayer. They're lifting up their prayer requests to the God of heaven. They're watching the sacrifice go up. It's just a normal day for them, but they're, they're seeing their prayers, literally, it's like they're seeing their prayers rise to heaven. In that moment, this guy gets healed, and he doesn't just get kind of healed in this moment. He who has not walked his entire life leapt to his feet and is able to just start walking around. He didn't have to go through that stage where you learn to walk, Right? It's not like he had to like first learn to roll over and then crawl. No, he was just healed in this moment. This is a strengthening of his legs. I like this actually in verse 8 because Luke probably wrote this and Luke was a doctor. And he just wants to make clear, you know, his, his, his feet and his ankles had to be strengthened for this to happen. Because they would have atrophied over 40 years. And so he's just like, just so you know, his, I just want to point this out as the doctor in the room. His ankles and his feet had to be strengthened. And that doesn't happen overnight, right? That takes time. You have to work out. You have to exit. This for him was instant. I don't know what happened in his heart in that moment, but when they asked him to stand and they reached out, he chose to stand up. He wanted money, but he got something better. This very powerful moment when he was healed. And now that a crowd has gathered, Peter is going to begin to preach. Now we've kind of, uh, as, as the evangelical church world, we've kind of copied this model. This is a little bit of what we do. Uh, we throw big events. 
so that we can draw a crowd, so that we can preach. And so we'll do an Easter egg hunt, or we'll do a giant barbecue, or we'll do some sort of outreachy thing where we gather a bunch of people together and we preach. But this is a little bit different than that. As somebody who's done all of those events, they're a lot of work, they take a lot of planning, and they're exhausting. But this is different. The Holy Spirit planned this event out, did all the coordination, provided all the energy and the power to make it happen. Peter and John were just walking to church when the Spirit said, we're going to do this. So they had this kind of amazing advantage where in this moment, the Spirit of God wanted the gospel to go out. And that's where Peter begins to preach. See, look what's happening here in verse 11. While he, that's the man who had been healed, was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses, and on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus, uh, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of of you all. I somehow got a slide ahead there, but I don't remember how to go backwards, so we're just going to leave it. So here's this moment where they begin to preach this message, but they have to say something. Understand what's happened. This guy got healed. He's leaping around and walking around, and he's praising God, and it's starting to stir up the crowd, and the crowd's looking at this guy, and it's like, I know this guy from somewhere. No, the guy I know is shorter because I remember I always had to look down at him. Wait a second. That's the lame beggar at the door. He's leaping and he's walking and he's praising God and the people are filled with wonder. They're filled with amazement in this. It says in, in uh, verses 11 and 12 that, they're all cl that he's clinging to Peter and John, that all the people are running together at them and they're at the so-called portico of Solomon, which means they've gone in through the gate now into the temple and they're under this kind of porched in area and the crowds are just rushing after them. So here's Peter and John. This guy's just clinging to them. The crowds are rushing towards them as they understand the excitement of what's happened. Everybody's amazed, but they're making a mistake here. They're thinking to themselves, what did Peter and John do? This is amazing. And Peter says, I didn't do anything. I don't have any special power. And I'm not more religious than everybody else. He says, it wasn't by my own power or piety we had, that, he, we had, uh, that, that he was made to walk. No, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your God, he's taking this moment to glorify his servant, Jesus. That's what's happening 
in this moment. God is taking this opportunity with that crowd of Jews who were not believers in Jesus Christ at this point to glorify, to shine the spotlight on Jesus Christ. Now, I love this for a number of reasons. The first is this. In too many ministries where you see healing, the person who gets all the praise is the special healer dude. Everybody's like, this guy's amazing. Have you been to this guy's thing? You go to his tent and people are getting healed left and right. All he has to do is touch you and all the attention falls on this guy. Well, Peter clears that up right away. He's like, I got nothing for you. I have no power of my own. It's a good reminder for us that it's the Holy Spirit of God who gifts people at times for the purpose of healing. That's the reality of it. It's the, it's the power of the Spirit of God doing the healing, not Peter. The second thing is he separates his own piety, his own religiousness from the healing. There's a false teaching out there that says the reason you're not healed is because you're not righteous enough. Peter points out, this has nothing to do with my piety. God just said, I'm going to do something today, and he did it because he's God. And yes, it happened through Peter and John, but they didn't originate it. They didn't control it. They were just there for the show. But he needs the crowd to understand that so that they would take this amazing moment and not worship them, but that he could proclaim that it was Jesus Christ who allowed this to happen. Notice this way back in verse 6 when he asked this guy to, uh, to stand up and walk. He started it with, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. And that's really going to be the foundation of his sermon. He's going to go back to the name, names, or titles of Jesus. So when we look at the name Jesus Christ, that's, uh, that's not like his first and last name. It has a meaning attached to it. Jesus is this Greek transliteration of what we would say in the Old Testament, either Hosea or Joshua, but it, it just means Savior or Deliverer. So literally the name Jesus means Savior. The word Christ translates to anointed, and it's intended to give us a picture. In the Old Testament, they would anoint the high priest, the one who was standing as a mediator between God and man. They would anoint that one with oil so everybody could see it was like a change of command. This is the high priest now. And it became this messianic title after King David, because they would also anoint their kings, after King David was promised that one of his would sit on the throne forever. So the anointed one would refer to either the high priest or the king. By the way, Jesus is both the king of Israel and the high priest of Israel. But it's saying that, the, that, that Jesus is the anointed one that they've been waiting for. And so when you really just say his name, it's really just saying he's the anointed savior. So in his name, the anointed Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, it says next that he's Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, um, which uh, may not mean a whole lot to us. It really just means he's from Nazareth, right? It's just, he's a Nazarene, he's from Nazareth, right? Um, man, should I tell my joke? I didn't tell it first service, but it just hit my brain. Mm. Ask me about it later. <laughs> it's a distraction from the message. But uh, the Nazarene, right? So Jesus, the Nazarene. Matthew points out in Matthew chapter 2 that the prophets of old said the Messiah would be called a Nazarene, and that was used by the Jews as, as somewhat of a, of a slur, as if it's just a Nazarene. 
The Nazarene's just this little podunk town. He's just from Nazarene. He's a nothing. He's a nobody. That the Messiah would be insulted by the people. And that's certainly what happened with Jesus. And you can see that in Psalm 22. You see it in Isaiah that the people would insult the one who would become the Messiah. So as Peter now is beginning to preach this sermon, he draws their attention to Jesus in this moment. He's going to do something else while he's drawing their attention. And we'll see a few more names of Jesus here. Uh, Verse 13, it says it's his servant Jesus. Servant actually becomes another title of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of God is the, uh, the picture of the Messiah, uh, which interestingly enough, just as a translation note, in verse 13, it says that he has glorified his servant Jesus and servant is a small s. But if you jump to verse 26, for you first God raised up his servant and it's a capital S so that you'll understand that this is referring to Jesus. So that you get that this is, this is becoming not just a proper name, but it's referring back to Jesus Christ, the Savior. It's always capitalized when we're talking about Jesus. They didn't do it in verse 13 because Jesus is already there, so they're just saying the servant Jesus. But all that is in of itself, it's a prophetic name, a prophesied name that he would be the Messiah of God. So anyway, uh, that's uh, the next one that we see there. But he immediately wants to convict them of sin by pointing out this Jesus that he's talking about, this Jesus who healed this guy. Oh yeah, that's the Jesus you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate. That's the Jesus, he says uh, in verse 14, you disowned the holy and righteous one. And instead you asked for a murderer. You could add the holy and righteous one. You chose a murderer. That's the Jesus in verse 15 that you put to death. The one you put to death is the prince of life, or a better translation there would be the author, originator, or source of life. You put to death the source of life. He's laying it on pretty thick here, but he needs them to understand that they're culpable for the death of Jesus, whether they drove the nails or not. But because they disowned Jesus Christ, they're responsible for his death. Just like us, because we lived apart from him, a disowning of Jesus Christ, we're responsible for his death. He needs us to know that. The holy and righteous one, the author of life, the servant of God, the anointed savior, that's the one they put to death. But that wasn't the end of the story in verse 15. It's also the one God raised from the dead. And if you don't believe it, ask us because we were witnesses. That's what he says. We were witnesses of these things. He needs them to know, verse 16, it was on the basis of faith in Jesus' name that this man was strengthened. This man who they knew was perfected in his health. That's what they needed to know. I'm going to tell you an extra story that you didn't get first service, but I talked to a gal after first service who explained that uh, in her family there were five children. The last one was born uh, with spina bifida during the Great Depression. And originally the doctors said this child's not going to live. Now you're going to think this is a great healing story. It's really not. Originally the doctors said to the mom, don't bond with this baby. It's not going to live. Have somebody else just take care of it for you. But after six weeks, the baby was still alive. And so they decided to introduce the baby into the family. Uh, The baby uh, never was cured of spina bifida, was paralyzed from the waist down its whole life. That baby grew up to be named Ned. Ned lived to be 75 years old. 
didn't get to run and jump and play with all the other kids, didn't get to do any of that. But when he entered into the temple of heaven, you know what he did? He leaped and he walked and he praised God. When he died at 75 years old, he still received his healing. But his time of unhealing on earth taught many lessons to the other four kids in the family. And it's through him that they learned the things of Jesus Christ. But anyway, I got distracted. But it was the faith in the name of Jesus Christ that Peter needed these guys to understand. He needed them to recognize that it was faith in Jesus Christ that brought this power because in healing that person, it glorified Jesus. So I want you to think of it in these terms. A number of us raised hands earlier, some because they had been healed, some because they knew people had been healed by God. Uh, As much as that healing was powerful in your life, it wasn't just for your life. This was life-changing for this this lame man that laid as a beggar. It was life-changing for him, but it wasn't just for him. He was going to enjoy the benefits of it, but it wasn't just for him. Who was it for? It was for all the others to hear the name of Jesus Christ. So if you were the one who was healed or if you know of someone who was healed, when you tell that story, you're telling it so that you can tell people the story of Jesus Christ to glorify him, to turn the spotlight on him. To praise him. That's why you tell that story. That's why God allowed that person to be healed so that glorification to Jesus could come. Anyway, we continue on with his sermon here in verse 17. We'll also get a few more uh, definitions of who Jesus was. Uh, Verse 17, it says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. So he kind of lets them off the hook. Yeah, you were just dumb. That's why you put him to death. But... (laughs) The things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. In other words, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, God already said that was going to happen. Verse 19, therefore, because of that, what I need you to do, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first... God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And now that he's explained to them who Jesus was, he's going to continue to, he also is going to explain to them how they need to respond to this. That even if you put him to death in ignorance, even if that's the case, it was all still according to God's plan. But what you need to do, you need to repent and return. You need to turn away from what you've been doing and turn towards God. Repentance is a turn away from me, a turn towards God. It's a surrendering of your life to Jesus Christ. What they needed to do was they needed to repent and return. And here's what he says. He's going to offer them three things that will be a result of that. The first thing that they'll receive, your sins will be 
wiped away, which I just love that imagery. It just sounds like, you know, like you're just cleaning up a trophy or something. You're just wiping all the gunk off of it. It's just wiped away. Your sins are just wiped away. When you repent and you return to Jesus Christ, your sins wiped away. We as believers need to be reminded of that. Sometimes we continue to live as if we're guilty of the things we had done in the past, but that's not who we are now. We were sinners, but we have been made clean. And again, I just love all that imagery in Scripture that he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west, buries it in the sea of forgiveness, tosses it behind his back, tramples it under his feet. He takes the certificate of debt, marking out all of our sins, and he marks it paid in full. It says that the all-knowing God doesn't even know. He remembers no more your sins. He doesn't even know that you've sinned now. If he doesn't know about your sin, it's time for you to stop living like you're a sinner. He's wiped away your sins. The imagery is of a whiteboard with a bunch of stuff written on it. Just wipe it away. Too many people are living in guilt of the things that used to be in their life. Those things are gone, forgiven. When you stand before God, he's not going to say, remember that time. He's not. Because he doesn't remember that time. The all-knowing God doesn't know that anymore. He's chosen to forgive it. The second thing he says, he's going to wipe away your sins. The second thing he's going to do is bring about times of refreshing. Now, this is ultimately speaking prophetically of what always is going to happen with, nation, with the nation of Israel and then ultimately with the world and the new kingdom. But even for the individual believer, there's this time of refreshing that follows repentance of sins. When you're operating in guilt and the weight of shame and that guilt and that weight is removed, you feel lighter. You feel like you can breathe better. There's a refreshment that comes with the forgiveness of our sins. And then ultimately, what he's saying here is, in the forgiveness of sins, ultimately, the Jesus who had to go up to heaven, ultimately, he's going to come and restore all things. All the prophets, he said, have said this. That the Messiah will come and he'll restore all things. But first, there's some people that need to repent. And to that crowd, he's saying, it's you. Just so you know, it's you. He's also going to give him a few more names in this. Uh, You see here in verse 22, he's going to quote from Moses. He says, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren To him you shall give heed. And that again became this picture of this promised one who would come after Moses, who would be like Moses. And Moses was told, you will be the mediator between God and man. When you speak, it'll be as if God is speaking. He's saying that prophet that was promised to Moses, that's Jesus. That's who Jesus is. He's that promised prophet. He's the holy. He's the anointed. He's the servant. He's all of these things. He's the prince or author of life. All of those things. That's who Jesus is. He's just laying it all out for him. All the prophets spoke about a time when things would be restored. And you guys, he's again speaking to this crowd of people there that are just months away from the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. He says, you guys, you're special. 
It was to you. You're the ones that get to see as prophesied here. Now we're talking about verse 25. You get to see the seed of all the families of earth that was promised in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. You got to see the resurrected Jesus Christ. He resurrected in your generation. He did that to bless you by giving you the chance to turn away from your wicked ways. You see what Peter did. He took advantage of the miraculous thing that God had done to draw their attention to Jesus Christ, to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies, to give them the opportunity to repent of their sins and become followers in Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, the chapter ends there because it's about to get ugly. I don't want to give away for too much for next week, but uh, for this great deed, James and John are going to be arrested. (laughs) But in verse 4 of chapter 4, something very important gets told to us. Many of those who had heard this message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Many of those who heard this message believed. God took this as a moment, this healing moment, as an opportunity to proclaim or to glorify, to shine the spotlight on his son, Jesus Christ, so that those who had disowned him, those who were living in wickedness, could turn away from that and turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. And then he allows us today to keep going through this message. Why? So that we can remember that he's a God who heals, but he heals with a purpose. He heals with the purpose of glorifying his son, Jesus Christ. So that we can tell people about the forgiveness of sins that's offered in Jesus Christ so that people can turn away from their disowning of him so that they could be saved. That's why we have this passage today. Certainly we want to see how the gospel is spreading throughout the earth, right? We want to see that. But equally as important is that we would see that that gospel is for us personally. This is the Jesus that we believe in. Amen? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, so thankful for your word every week. Uh, for, for us this week, I would pray that the conversation doesn't end here. We didn't just have a preaching moment. That from here on out this week, your Holy Spirit will begin to bring to mind different aspects of this sermon that uh, apply to us, that are important for us to remember. Lord, I, I know uh, that there are people in the room today who have just been afraid to ask for you to work miraculously in their life. Father, I I would ask that uh, your spirit would inspire them to pray. Father, there are people who need to be reminded that the purpose of all the great things you've done in their life was so that they could glorify your son, Jesus. And Father, I always believe that there's people in the room, whether believers who are caught in sin or unbelievers who've disowned your son, Jesus Christ, there's always people in the room who need to repent and turn away from their sins. Father, you can sort out the crowd as to which one's which. Father, you can say so much more than this in this passage. But I pray today, Lord, that you would encourage people through your word, that you would strengthen us and edify us, and that your word would not return void as you've promised. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.